0: American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. The 1947 Taft-Hartley Act, which limited the ability of labor unions to organize and to call strikes, put the brakes on what had been unquestionably the greatest 15 years of labor organization and an increasingly strong union movement in U.S. history, but for the next 20 years or so, the union movement would remain strong, would remain at historical highs, in fact. After that, we'd start to see a period of decline, but let's look first at the period of success, and then we'll shift to explaining some of the reasons for the decline. As of 1948, 34 percent of all private sector workers are organized the number in the public sector, and here we're talking about employees of uh, state, local, and the federal government, uh, including people like firefighters and policemen and so on and so forth, only about 10% of them are unionized as of the late 1940s, and that percentage would increase over time. But throughout the 1950s, the total percentage of American workers who are members of unions, who are members of the organized labor movement, remains high as late as the early 1960s, it's about 25%. That's very, very significant. That gives the union uh, movement as a whole, organized labor as a whole, a seat at the table in determining national economic policy. That means that uh, it is very difficult uh, and very challenging for any one corporation to say, we're going to push this union uh, out of our factories. We're going to refuse to make a contract with them. They know they're going up against a powerful force. And that powerful force was so powerful because it had delivered real gains to American workers, a steadily rising standard of living throughout the 1950s. But at some point in the 1960s, things started to change. The total number of workers uh, involved in organized labor would start to decline slowly at first. The number would still be fairly high by the early 1980s, 15%. But then it would start to plummet. And even before then, two other things had happened. The esteem in which Americans held labor unions as a whole, which was something like, uh, which if you can measure it, was at about uh, an 80% positive rating, according to pollsters, in the early 1950s. That started to, to decline rapidly. It declined to about 50% uh, and even slightly lower by the 1970s. And the willingness of American working class people, uh, white, black, immigrant, non-immigrant, northern, southern, wherever, to identify themselves with the labor movement, to commit themselves to it, to see that as a collectivity to which they, um, in, in which they belong, to which they wanted to lend their allegiance, that started to decline as well. And it's harder to put a number on that, but it's perceptible. And it be- that, too, became an important force for change. So you might ask, why would American workers turn away from organizations that had unquestionably changed their position at the bargaining table, that had driven up their wages, uh, that had enabled the creation of all kinds of protective laws, uh, organizations run by the federal government that maintain workplace safety, training programs uh, for their children who wanted to enter the same industries? Why would workers turn away from organizations that had done those things? And there are several answers. There are several possibilities. One is that to a large extent, the solidarity among workers, especially in big unions like the steel workers and the auto workers, was conditioned upon their similarity. Almost all of them were white men, and most of their workplaces were segregated by race. As the United States started to change under the pressure of the civil rights movement and under the pressure of the need to show the world an egalitarian face, Uh, given the competition with the Soviet Union, as those things started to happen in the 1960s, there was more and more pressure exerted, sometimes within those unions and sometimes from outside of those unions, sometimes uh, by reporters and other critics, uh, and sometimes by civil rights activists uh, and aspirant African-American workers themselves to open up these unions, to open up these workplaces. And it turned out that when you desegregated the union, some white workers were not willing to accept integration. They could no longer identify with a union that was not effectively or actually all white. A second way to look at it is to say that unions, to some extent, died of their own success. As they were able to deliver more and more gains to workers, as they became more and more institutionalized, more and more expected as partners at the bargaining table, and as the rewards got greater and greater for union leaders who were able to sign big contracts with management, eventually some would charge. The leadership got detached from the actual body of the union, from the actual concerns and the actual lives uh, of union workers. And so the unions start to uh, decline from the perspective of democracy uh, at any rate. Uh, They they become um, corrupt. Uh, They're led uh, by those who are essentially politicians uh, rather than activists, if you will. There's probably no better example of this than the United Mine Workers, uh, where an entire family of a uh, labor activist within the union who's trying to change it from the bottom up is murdered one day in 1969 at the orders of some of those who are most powerful in the union and who are most reluctant to see it change. And others would charge that the unions are just one more group in American society that is disrupted. And pushed in unexpected directions by the many social, political, and cultural changes of the 1960s. As the 60s go on, uh, and as union leadership, in some cases, uh, becomes more and more committed to the civil rights struggle, and of course the union leadership is tied to the National Democratic Party, members uh, start to see the liberal politics uh, of the union leaders uh, in an era in which young liberals in particular seem to be challenging many of the most um, beloved orthodoxies uh, of traditional American identity, they they start to pull away from the idea of the Union for that reason. And so you start to see conflicts uh, erupting between constituencies, which just a few years before had really been allies. There's probably nothing more uh, symbolic of this than you will than the so-called hard-hat riot in 1970 in which uh, a faction within the AFL-CIO leadership sends about 200 construction workers into lower Manhattan to attack a protest of students uh, who are memorializing, uh, who are protesting about the recent slayings of four students at Kent State University uh, in Ohio by the National Guard. And those students, of course, have been protesting the Vietnam War. and The Vietnam War is a key touchstone in all of this, many union workers sent sons uh, to Vietnam, and they felt that students like the ones who were protesting in Lower Manhattan uh, were uh, desecrating the memory of those who had been killed fighting for the United States in Vietnam, uh, or were somehow undermining those who were still fighting. The Vietnam War is just one piece of the many cultural tensions uh, that were ripping at American uh, social fabric in the 1970s. The point is uh, that by the end of that era, many of those who had been uh, the traditional backbone of American unions, white working-class men uh, in Northeastern and Midwestern cities, w- were very uh, doubtful uh, of their own um, ties to the AFL-CIO, the Umbrella Union Organization, uh, and even uh, many lower-tier uh, union, mem- union leaders, and there are many reasons that had pulled them away from it, but their commitment to the idea of the union had perhaps changed a bit but those changes would only accelerate in the 1970s. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University.